Hello and a very warm welcome to a new episode of Women Build, brought to you by World Architecture News from Alison and Nav. In today's episode, we speak to Kate Rasmussen, Executive Business Strategist at Wade Weissman Architecture about luxury residential design. Kate received her Bachelor of Architecture degree from the University of Notre Dame and a Master of Arts degree in Sustainable Architecture and Urbanism from the Princess Foundation for the Built Environment at the University of Wales. She was elected a Fellow of the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art in New York City in 2007. Having spent the last decade as a specialist in the business of high-end residential architecture, Kate is known not only for her design excellence, but also for her ability to connect, network and grow the practice in new markets, project types and geographical locations. So Kate, thank you for joining us today. To start with, could you tell us how you define luxury residential architecture in the US? So I think that's a really interesting question. In my opinion, I don't believe that there's any preconceived list of features or number of bedrooms or number of garage bays or anything. To me, high-end luxury really comes from the sort of custom bespoke side of creating a space and an environment for our clients that lives exactly how they want to live, that meets their current needs right now and also into the future. And so we've had clients come to us to ask to design something as small as, you know, a a garden folly out, you know, on their property. That's a sort of a small jewel box, something that they can look out to and then, you know, space that they can go out and escape from the house. So it's not large in nature, but it's so customized to meet a need that they're looking to fill. We've had a client also ask us for sort of a a garage, you know, and and that seems like, you know, maybe not the most uh, definition of luxury, but we've then taken that idea of a garage because they love cars and collect cars and have fireplaces and a greenhouse attached to the side of it and lounge spaces in that. And so I think sometimes to us, luxury is, you know, an over 20,000 square foot large home that is full of, you know, beautiful customized materials. But I think more importantly, it's when you know, it's the discussions that we have with our clients about how they live, what kind of functions do they want to have in the home and make sure that the home then is able to accommodate everything exactly how they want to live with, you know, their their family and when they entertain and when they have guests over. And so I, I think that is really sort of the high-end luxury market. When we speak to it, it's really that more personalized touch of getting to know the particular clients and exactly what it is that's going to make the space speak to them. That's interesting. You say it's not based on size, but when you think about a luxury house, you would typically think of something that's absolutely huge. Would you say instead that there's a starting price point for luxury residential? So that as well is a, it's a difficult item to pinpoint and speak to exactly. I think it it varies widely, even across the United States. And, you know, I've had the fortune to work, you know, across the UK as well and in several other countries. And so I think uh, a lot of it depends on your access 
to the craftspeople that you're looking to create these customized spaces, exactly what materials and resources are locally available. I think we've worked on, you know, some amazing homes that we always speak to sort of cost per square foot in in the U.S. And so I think, you know, we've created some beautiful homes that sort of start in the three or four hundred dollars a square foot range. But many of our homes can also be double or even triple that cost per square foot, really depending on where the client takes us and, and how they sort of see the level of materials on the exterior and interior. And so that that sort of a, equates to, it's, it's part of the process. It's a really important discussion that we like to have with clients at the beginning of every project to understand when they're looking to build sort of a luxury home that's customized exactly how they want it. It's, it's important to have those discussions in the beginning. What, what does that mean to you? And then what level of investment are you looking so that we can make sure that we're sort of matching the design to the investment that they're looking to make? So how much of your work is new build and how much is renovation and improvement? And of those two, how do the challenges of them differ? Sure. The I'd say right now, probably about 60% of our work is new build and about 40% is renovation. It, it definitely varies over time. You know, at any one point, we might have, you know, over 40 projects. And so there are a large sway of new build versus renovation. Interestingly, right now, many of our projects are sort of a combination of the two. One sort of project type that I see that has been sparking up more and more in recent years is this idea of a family compound and multi-generational living. I think there is a resurgence of trying to live through, you know, have the the older generations now share sort of a property with uh, younger generations that might be having kids of their own. And so many of our projects then involve some land that might have a family home on it. And so there's a renovation of, of that home and maybe that becomes the guest house or sometimes that is, a, you know, a major renovation to become sort of a main house structure. And then there are new structures that are added around the property as well, guest cottages or, you know, auxiliary homes for other family members or for guests to come, exercise pavilions or, you know, a pool house to go as a destination. And so I think that's a really interesting trend. (laughs) I don't know if it's a trend, but it's a really interesting thing that we find ourselves really fortunate to design sort of those across the U.S. right now. I think it's great to talk with clients that are looking to achieve something like that because there's this idea of wanting to spend time and pass on, you know, the history of the family and and time together. And I I personally love that. I think it's a really great sort of direction (laughs) for people to be going towards. In terms of challenges, I think sometimes a blank piece of paper is one of the biggest challenges. And so if, you know, in new construction, there's endless opportunities and ideas that one can think about. And I think for some clients that becomes a little bit daunting at times. And we really try hard to show them different images and ideas so that they can work through those ideas and it's not as daunting. So I think that's both an opportunity and a constraint to have the blank sheet of paper with new construction. In a renovation, there's obviously sort of a given set of constraints. There are ceiling heights often, there are existing 
existing structure, there's any sort of deferred maintenance and, and issues that you have to look at with sort of a, you know, an older home that you're walking into or an older building and figuring out how to breathe some new life into that and add on to that. But I think the, the positive side of the renovation is that it often it often helps you to create that story where there's there's an existing history inevitably to that structure and what it was and you start to see little pieces of that and we love to mean you know to retain that character and some of the you know older homes that that we're able to begin to work in you know often there there are some traditional crafts that are involved there of carved wood and carved stone and, you know, beautiful flooring materials and, and real, you know, materials that you're able to sort of give a new life to that would be very difficult to replicate and, and very expensive right now to replicate that sort of same look. And so it's, it's very, when a client comes to us and says, you know, we have this idea, should we renovate this home or should we build new? It's a real, I don't think there's a hard and fast, easy answer to those. I think there's, there are definitely, you know, exciting opportunities and uh, on, on both sides of, of those two building types, which is why we really love to do both of them. And how would you say luxury residential design varies around the world? So for us, I think every project is unique, whether it's across the United States or, you know, across the world. I think, you know, as I mentioned before, the family's history and the client or family's priorities of what they want to achieve there I think obviously makes that vary pretty wildly. There's a practical side of building in different locations. There are zoning and historic codes and ordinances. And it's a really important part of understanding a property that you know, someone might be considering. Often many of our clients are very successful people that are, you know, are looking to invest into, you know, a, a great deal of, of financial investment into creating sort of their their perfect home for their family. But there are a lot of constraints that come, you know, with properties that are oceanfront facing or the most interesting sites that have the views out to the water or dramatic landscapes and amazing rocks outcroppings, you know, often come with a lot of those constraints that affect how you design a luxury home in a setting like that. There's a lot of research and understanding that has to be done to make sure that the home is very safe for our firm loves to create what we call heirloom homes, homes that can not only outlive the homeowner who's building it, but future generations. And with that comes a lot of care and understanding of hurricanes and earthquakes and soil constraints. And so I think that's that's the part of it that's maybe a little bit less glamorous on the luxury design varies around the world. But I think that's an, you know, an important part to think about and how those kind of codes and criteria in different locations around the world actually do help to shape the buildings there. That's why you see stucco in certain areas and stone in other areas or, you know, timber frame construction as sort of the preferred method in other locations around the world. And then, of course, just when we enter into something, a new town or city or country that is new to us, we do a very deep dive into the history of that location and what might be an appropriate great new building to add to a neighborhood or 
you know, a streetscape to make sure that we're tying into the history and character, the details that came from that place. And so I think each of those things really does kind of define uh, luxury design around the world. And that leads actually to a question that I'd like to ask. You talk about the forever homes you're building acting as heirlooms, which can be passed through generations. If this is what people want from their homes at a certain stage in life, what do you need to consider from a design point of view? That is typically most of our clients come to us saying, I've lived here and renovated, I've lived here and renovated, and I would really love to work with you on on our forever home. That's to us the most exciting type of project. You're looking to the future and you are creating a space that is a forever home for those clients. We do like to balance that with what the resale value potentially could be, because as we all know, anything can happen. (laughs) And um, you would want to make sure that if someone was relocated or had a major life change that they didn't know about, you know, didn't know was coming, although the home was created as a forever home for them and hopefully future generations of their family, that it would be something that would sort of stand on its own in in market resale. So we, we kind of balance those, those two things as we're talking with clients. Do you think there's also a growing interest in investing in high end as a result of the pandemic? People are and, and have been spending more time in their homes and perhaps they're now realizing that they want comfort there rather than just passing through. Are you seeing that as a trend? Definitely. We see so much of that right now where there has been a a huge shift. I think people looked at sort of their life and maybe traveled a lot more and wanted to go take time with their family and experience many different places around the world. And, you know, fingers crossed, hopefully we get we get back there and there's still that balance. But we see a huge shift in investment in primary home and particularly making an investment in having sort of a second or third home to be able to go to with family. The residential, the high-end luxury residential market is across the United States busier than it has ever been. And if we look at the question of how to future-proof these homes, homes that will be passed on through generations, what kind of things would you suggest need to be put in place now? How far do you look forward when you are developing a new building? So interestingly, I think when we look forward, we mostly look backwards. (laughs) So stick with me for a second on that. I think something that's really important when it comes to the building materials is we really like to work with our clients on picking materials that are sort of tried and true materials that patina over time, where as they age and grow, they don't fail, but we know how they age. We know how a stone house ages. We know how a brick house ages. We know a slate roof and the longevity of a slate roof. And so not to say we we don't integrate technology There are clients of ours that like very, very high-end technology that that sort of runs the home, especially if it's a home where they are not their primary home, where they're in all the time, that there are, you know, they like to know that there's a lot of that in place that can, you know, make sure that keep up the maintenance of the home. You know, one of the things that we have noticed on the new technologies is that so many of them are Wi-Fi now, where before 
decisions had to be made and those were built into the home. And there was, you know, very, very large technology room, you know, usually in the basement with wires built throughout the whole house. And a lot of that has changed. You know, you can get really great Wi-Fi based security and waterproofing and speakers and sound system through your home, your roller shades and lighting, different lighting settings that, you know, clients had to make those decisions and they were sort of built into the house forever or until they made a very large investment to change those systems. And now because they're Wi-Fi based, it's much easier right now to create the system that is sort of the most high tech right now. But if something different comes out in 12 or 20 years from now that they wanted to change, there's not as much of a physical change that needs to happen to the house. And I think that's a really, it's really freeing for clients that are drawn to that technology. Again, interestingly, I find a lot of our clients right now who I'd say majority used to be very interested in an electronic, you know, version of of going in and looking at lighting of a whole room, many people are are sort of saying, you know, a light switch isn't that bad. I can just go in and, and turn on a few light switches as, as well. And how do you keep up with all the fast moving technology developments to make sure that you are at the cutting edge, as it were, of these new things coming in? We all try to read as much as we can. You know, historically, we're going to trade shows and the convention centers that are focused on design that are there showcasing, you know, new technologies. And, you know, the pandemic has has changed quite a lot of that where you have to really seek that out because we're not out and about quite as much as we used to. In terms of your relationships with clients, what technology are you using yourselves to be able to talk a client through the story of your design? Sure. So one of the things that you know, like any profession as architects, you know, we we breathe these tiny drawings that are done to scale and I, we can look at a drawing and, and know exactly what that space feels like. That's what us as professionals, you know, that's what we need to know. And it is, it's not sort of an, a natural thing as you're presenting it to the client that they can look at a floor plan and read the floor plan and understand exactly what that hallway is going to feel like. And while I guess there are technologies like VR to help clarify, it's the details that people need and want to see in high value residential to get a real feel of it. So that's, I mean, re- honestly, that's why we are more drawn to the the hand drawing because you either have to put in so much time to make it look completely accurate. If you just sort of put a placeholder in into a model, you run the risk of not giving the true character and feel of the space. You mentioned that you look at materials that age well. How does that fit with now needing to look for more sustainable materials, perhaps? And I guess this takes us back to our earlier point of the importance of knowing how materials will age. If a client invests in well-researched and understood materials, then in some ways that is also supporting sustainability as they won't need replacing. Are we now in a position of possibly being unsure about these new materials and their ageing potential, do you think, Kate? I think that's just it. There's still some unknown factor to what a new synthetic material is going to look like in 20 years, in 40 years, and in 100 years. And we do know what marble will look like then. So often when we're having those discussions with clients, we are definitely trying to sway them to items that are sustainable. But I also think some part of sustainability is 
the idea that you're picking the right material at the beginning. You're buying it one time and it's going to last the hundred years rather than having like a 20 year lifespan where you need to purchase something five times. And I think that's, that's a nuance to sustainability that is very interesting and harder to pinpoint or document. And just the way that you design a building creates, you know, sustainability that I personally believe does not have to rely on technology, but having a good window to wall ratio, having eave overhangs that shed water from the building that help create, you know, keep the building cool, having shutters that that work. So my view about sustainability is much more the historic nature of sustainability versus a lot of new products that are out there that create sustainability. Yeah, it's it's the longevity, isn't it, of a product that you can count on yeah. and that won't need replacing. But I agree, that's a nuanced point here. Exactly. And possibly one that people haven't really considered as full as they should when they look at sustainability. You also mentioned the critical importance of the architectural design and the absolute necessity of getting that correct. You hold a Master of Arts degree in Sustainable Architecture from the Prince's Foundation for the Built Environment at the University of Wales in the UK. And you used your skills learnt on that course on projects, one of which was the Ellen Pavilion in Scotland. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Sure. Yes. So I was working in New York City on, you know, high-end residential and got this amazing opportunity to be a part of this fellowship and getting the Masters of Sustainable Architecture and Urbanism based in London. And so I was able to spend two years in London and work on a lot of projects locally, really travel around the UK. The Princess Foundation is one of Prince Charles's charities focused on creating sustainable communities and having a real holistic approach. So it's, it's very similar to what we were just discussing about the idea of sustainability and the holistic side from where materials are sourced, how they are designed, and how communities, once that structure is built, how the communities are able to, you know, the longevity of the structure and how it's built into its larger context in terms of street, town, city. There was a large focus on heritage craft skills. And so the Ellen project that was very formative in forming my career was a very small project, but there was a a design competition for a pavilion. And so when my design was selected from the architects, I was able to partner up with some building craft apprentices. And so those were sort of young men and women that were really interested in learning traditional building methodologies, timber frame, stone mason, stone carving, a slate roof. And so I was working hand in hand with them to design the structure with enough drawings and then working to secure the materials. So we reclaimed some old slate that had been taken off of a chapel somewhere, some timber. And then we all moved to Scotland for about four or five months. And also you're a fellow of the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art in New York City. What do you mean by classical architecture? Do you use those elements now in your design? And were you involved in the designs for Poundbury? So we were on in sort of the the further phases at Poundbury. We were able to visit there many times, but it's such a unique and amazing built example of that kind of sustainable living, the holistic view from food and farming to the buildings and walkability and how the houses were designed. And the designs all use classical lines, don't they? It does, yes. And so that was in my undergraduate studies before 
the master's in London, I also focused particularly on classical architecture. So that's sort of the background of understanding. I think if you understand the classics, you're able to design using proportion and scale, whether you have a classical column on the front of your house or not, there's a set of rules that you're able to understand when you understand classical architecture. And then you can choose to follow those or break those in kind of a systematic way to create, you know, more modern or contemporary design. And I feel that I, I think if you've got an awareness of classical elements, then you know what you're taking away. Yes. Otherwise, in some instances, you could possibly be stuck between a mediocre classical design yes, exactly. and a modern design. Yes. But if you see it all, you can really embrace the modern elements. Yes. Thank you very much for your fulsome and interesting answers today, Kate. I know we've got some really good information in this podcast for people, so thank you. Great. No, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We welcome your feedback on the podcast, so please aim all your comments to waneditorial at haymarket.com. You can listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. So follow download and join us as we look into the world of architecture from a female perspective, wherever you are.